This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm your host, Ash Sarka, and joining me tonight is my colleague, my comrade, and Navarra Media co-founder, Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? All the better for hearing and seeing you, Ash. I hope we, uh, hopefully we'll have a great show this evening. Lots to talk about. He says that to all the hosts. I'm not special. Coming up later tonight, Israel have given their defence against accusations of genocide at the International Court of Justice. Police are beating and arresting anti-Zionists in the Israeli city of Haifa. And remember the Brexit party, they're now called Reform, and we'll be looking at the state of them. Let's go to our first story. Britain and the United States have carried out a series of airstrikes in Yemen. U.S. jets took off from carriers stationed in the Red Sea late last night. Around 100 precision-guided munitions were used in its strikes, including Tomahawk land-to-air missiles. At the same time, four British typhoons flew from an RAF base in Cyprus before dropping their bombs on two locations in western Yemen. This was the moment a missile struck the town of Hodaida on the Red Sea coast. The UK and US say they've struck a total of 60 targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. Now, the group prefers to be called Ansar Allah, but unfortunately that's not the term British audiences are familiar with, so we're going to stick to Houthi. The Houthis say 72 locations were hit, including in the capital Sana'a. Here's how Defence Minister James Heapy explained the attack to the BBC. Last night was a limited, proportionate, necessary response in self-defence of our warships in the region, who themselves are there to defend commercial shipping and to protect uh, the freedom of navigation through the Bab al-Mendib Strait and the Southern Red Sea that is so vital to global trade. A warning was issued to the Houthis uh, by a large number of nations over a week week ago uh, to say to them that they should not continue in their attacks of shipping. They did. Indeed, they attacked Royal Navy and US Navy warships only 48 hours ago. That warning remains in place, but it's very important that people are clear that last night's mission was uh, a mission in self-defense to disrupt the Houthi capacity to launch attacks on US Navy, Royal Navy warships uh, and wider commercial shipping in the region. Hmm. An act of self-defence against our warships, which for some reason are just hanging out off the Yemeni coast. You might wonder what they're doing there. Western states have been sending ships to the region since Houthi fighters began targeting commercial ships passing through the Red Sea. In November, they seized this ship, the Galaxy Leader. It's a commercial carrier owned by a Japanese shipping company and Israeli businessman Rami Unger. 25 crew members still remain in Houthi captivity. That hijacking, along with skirmishes with other commercial ships, has led insurers to demand that carriers no longer move through the Red Sea. The Houthi attacks have been taking place in the narrow Bab al-Mandab Strait, the southern entry point to the Red Sea. All ships moving to or from the Mediterranean have to pass through it. Now, instead, ships moving between Europe and Asia are being diverted via the Cape of Good Hope, adding at least two weeks to their journey times. The effect of the Houthis' actions on global shipping has been immense. Only around a third of the world's usual traffic is now moving through the Red Sea. The delays caused by the longer route led to a 1.3% drop in global trade in December, And while the UK has described its attack on Yemen as self-defence, the US was a little more direct, citing jeopardised trade in their justification for the intervention. So, why are the Houthis attacking ships? They say it's a response to Israel's assault on Gaza, and have threatened to disrupt shipping until Israel withdraws. And their military spokesperson, Yahya Sari, has promised that last night's attack won't go unpunished, saying this. 
the Yemeni armed forces will not hesitate to target the origin of any threat and all enemy targets in land and on the sea to defend the Yemen's sovereignty and independence. This belligerence cannot dent the Yemeni armed forces from their purpose supporting the Palestinian people. We, the armed forces of Yemen, will continue to prevent the Israeli vessels or those headed to the occupied Palestinian territories from navigating in the Arab Sea or the Red Sea. God is our rock and long live Yemen, independent and free. Victory to Yemen and all free men worldwide. Mohammed Ali al-Houthi, a member of the Houthi Supreme Political Council, has said this in response to the attacks. The United States is the devil. We did not attack the shores of America, nor did we move in the American islands, nor did we attack them. Your strikes on our country are terrorism. They are terrorists, and they are amazing at lying to the people of the world, but the awareness of the Yemeni people is a different awareness. Do you, Yemeni, think that America is defending itself, or is it a terrorist? It appears that the people in Houthi-controlled Yemen are behind the group, too. Large protests have occurred in the capital, Sana'a, with thousands of people taking to the streets bearing both Yemeni and Palestinian flags. This is what they were chanting. We do not care, we do not care, we do not care. Make it a grand world war. Our hearts long for rifles and battles by God. Living like this is forbidden to me. It's kind of a hardcore chant when you think about it. Um, Britain's decision to bomb Yemen was taken without any consultation with Parliament. Perhaps you'd think the opposition would object to bilateral military action raising tensions in an already fraught region without parliamentary mandate. Well, think again. This was Keir Starmer on the BBC. You have given this military action your full support, is that correct? Yes, we are supporting this action. The Houthi attacks have been carried out now for some time in the Red Sea. It's on commercial shipping, that's civilians who are operating that commercial shipping. And um, not only is it disrupting uh, trade and shipping, but of course it's putting civilian lives at risk. And therefore, um, we do support this action. The US and Britain's attack on Yemen hasn't happened in a vacuum. Rather, it comes against a backdrop of regional struggle for dominance. Both powers provided logistical training and intelligence support to the Saudi-UAE-led coalition bombing campaign in Yemen between 2015 and 2022. Yemen is the poorest nation in the Arab world, yet the Saudi-led naval blockade left 20 million Yemenis facing humanitarian disaster as fuel and food imports were effectively cut off. Currently, there is a ceasefire between the Saudi coalition and Yemen, as the Gulf monarchies try to preserve a fragile detente with Iran. And I think there's a certain ghoulish irony that after facilitating deadly starvation and disease in Yemen by cutting off its maritime trade, the West has now bombed Houthi targets in the name of, well, protecting commercial shipping. I'm joined now by David Weering, lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex. David, thank you so much for joining me. So the UK government's argument is that last night's attack on Yemen was in the interests of British national security. How true is that? Um, well, it does affect us in this country if shipping through the Red Sea is disrupted. It's, um, it's a really key shipping lane. About 15 20% of global shipping goes through the Red Sea. Um, you know, some, some oil, um, gas exports, um, visible goods as well. So I don't think anyone really disagrees that it's a problem that shipping through the Red Sea is disrupted. The question is, you know, what should be done about that? Now, I was just reading the um, British government's legal justification for this, and they twice they used the phrase only feasible means. This was the only feasible means of stopping a disruption in um in the Red Sea. Well, obviously that's false because the other feasible means of doing this would have been to to negotiate a de-escalation in the region. This is born of a regional conflict. So I think what the British and the Americans have done after these airstrikes in terms of the way they've justified it is really try and make out as though 
the issue of the Houthis and Red Sea shipping has got nothing to do with Gaza. Well, sorry, it has. You know, this was this was triggered by the war in Gaza. The Houthis have been quite clear about that, and it fits in with the wider sort of escalation, destabilization of the region that's come as a result of the war in Gaza. Whether that's the um, the cross border um, firing between Hezbollah and, and Israel in the north of Israel, south of Lebanon, whether that's um, hostilities um, exchanges between U.S. troops and local militia in Syria, in Syria, uh, in Iraq, it's already spreading into a regional war. And then what's happening in the Red Sea is part of that. Now. The idea that you can deal with that, let's look at it from the point of view of the West from the moment, it's not something we should always do, but let's just look at it from their point of view just for a minute. The idea that the only way you can deal with this um, with this disruption to shipping is by deterring the Houthis through armed action is a bit difficult to square with the fact that various people have been bombing the Houthis for something like 20 years. Um, you mentioned the Saudi war on Yemen. I mean, they they pulverized the place. You know, it was a, a really, really punishing military campaign, indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets, as you mentioned, a blockade on Houthi-held territory. Not unlike, in fact, very similar to the tactics that the Israelis have been using in Gaza. Well, at the end of that, the Houthis have become a sort of para-state entity. They effectively won the war. Um, they became much stronger as a result. So the idea that this is what needs to be done to stop the disruption in in, in Red Sea shipping is is kind of difficult to swerve the fact that we've already been tried, you know, defeating the Houthis militarily. The real way to deal with this is through um, is through regional de-escalation, through negotiations, and above all, through a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, if we're going to talk about what the feasible means are of dealing with this problem. That's the main one. It's far more feasible and far more promising than what the British and the Americans did last night. Is there a possibility that Britain and America will find themselves directly involved in a drawn-out military conflict in Yemen? Yeah, that's the danger. I mean, I don't see them committing ground troops at all. I think we, I mean, we already saw just in the last few minutes while I was waiting to come on, I was having a look, and we, we've already seen some reports of attacks on vessels in the Red Sea again coming from Yemen. Now, that may be true or maybe not, but I, I do expect the, the Houthis to respond. I don't expect them to back down. There's no indication that they will. They seem very confident after having seen off the Saudis. You know, they, they, they were bombed and, and blockaded and pulverised by a regional military power, black by the world's superpowers. And as a paramilitary organisation, they not only survived, but thrived through that. Um, and so them firing back after these latest strikes, is, it seems likely to me. Now, at that point, what did the British and the Americans do? Because they've taken this action, apparently to deter the Houthis. Now, if they take the action and the Houthis aren't deterred, what do they do then? Just back down? That seems unlikely too. More likely, they're like the ante. And so you get into this escalatory dynamic, this escalatory spiral where each side can't back down, won't back down, ups the ante. And in the end, you get into a really serious conflict. It's much easier to get into a conflict, to get into a war than to get out of it. Um and the, and the danger of that, I mean, it's, it's really serious, you know, in terms of a regional war, in terms of the effect on inflation, in terms of the effect inflation will then have on wider global politics, whether that's, that, you know, including on the US election this year. Um, so, yeah, there is a real danger here without wanting to be alarmist about it. There's certainly a danger of this carrying on. What does all of this mean for what has been described by some as a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran? I don't think the Saudis and the Iranians want to um, want to revisit the, the worst of the tensions between them, um, which seems to have calmed down a little since the Chinese brokered a kind of deal between the two sides, which seems to have de-escalated tensions. I mean, people may be listening to me saying we shouldn't have military sort of action, we should have negotiations to de-escalate tensions, and be saying, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice to live in that? world where everyone can just you know shake hands and get on but the thing is this is often how negotiate how um how conflicts end i mean you know with that mentality we would never have imagined that the chinese could broker a deal between the saudis and the iranians the saudis and the iranians were trading ferocious barbs at each other for a long time 
They were fighting proxy wars around the region with each other. But it is possible, you know, to have this kind of negotiation that can that can encourage two sides to see their own material interests and the de-escalation of tensions. I think we've got to the point between the Saudis and the Iranians now when they realise it's not in either of their interests to maintain that, that their rivalry at such a high pitch. Um, the Saudis definitely don't. The Saudis are really nervous about what's just happened in Yemen. They don't want to go back. They want to, you know, extricate themselves from this. I don't think the Iranians are half as belligerent as the Houthis are. So I'm not sure that that's um, necessarily what we should be worried about. It's more about the dynamic between the British and the Americans on the one hand and the Houthis on the other. That can take on a life of its own if it's not happening already. David Wearing, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Aaron, this is something that you've written extensively about, and I was wondering if you could share your thoughts with our audience. How likely is a direct military confrontation between the West, i.e. Britain and America, and Iran at this stage? Well, I think it's pretty unlikely. You had uh, Secretary Blinken, who, let's be honest, is quite frankly the de facto president, given the state of, of Joe Biden, particularly with relation to foreign affairs. Uh, he, they have ruled this out. They said, we do not want war with Iran. Um, but then, of course, you do have people like John Bolton, uh, formerly a, um, a very high-ranking security advisor to Donald Trump, saying that there should be war with Iran. You've had a, a former Israeli prime minister say the same. So those aren't just you know commentators in the Spectator or the Telegraph. Those are people who served the most senior levels of their respective governments. And of course, you know John Bolton and people like him will be back in the frame if if Trump or indeed any Republican uh, wins the next presidential election. So I. I think it's, it's very plausible. I think right now with the present administration, uh, with Blinken, with Biden, I think it's unlikely. Uh, but it does go back to what's going on right now with Yemen. David's final point about you know the Yemeni government being far more belligerent than the Iranian is absolutely correct. Both, of course, revolutionary governments, but Iran's revolution is 45 years ago. You know Their revolutionaries are in their 60s. Uh, Yemen are very different kettle of fish. You know, this is a revolutionary government uh, ruling a country where the median age is 19. It's a very young country, lots of young men. And young men are very happy to get involved in violence, you know, uh, far more than countries where the median age is 39, 40, 41. This huge demographic bulge of young men, um, a revolutionary government. And of course, key here is the military hardware that they have access to, loitering munitions, drones, anti-ship missiles, um, the Iranians have, of course, extensive range of medium-range uh, missiles, some that can travel up to 2,000 kilometers, the Shahab-3, for instance. So I really think that in this whole debate, uh, particularly coming out of the UK media and the political class in this country, I think people think that they're dealing with like little Somali pirates. You know, they're not. Um, Yemen is a serious uh, contender by itself. Um, as is Iran. You know, th these are these are people that have, like I say, drones, cruise missiles. You know, the Mahajer drone that the Iranians use is a reverse-engineered uh, Reaper drone that the US has. So, okay, not state-of-the-art, but very effective. And that's why the Saudis aren't getting embroiled in this. That's why they weren't involved in these strikes. That's why they've not um, supported them, whereas the Germans, the Bahrainis have, etc., because, as David points out, it took a long time for them to extricate themselves from a, a, a quagmire, frankly, in Yemen. You know, more than 350,000 people died. Yemenis died in that war. Um, I think more than 75,000 kids died, children, according to Save the Children. Uh, Four million people displaced. That didn't beat the Houthis. And yet, you know, Keir Starmer and the government and Sky and the BBC are telling us that apparently a few airstrikes are going to going to stop them from doing this. You know, I think when it comes to foreign affairs, you need to be very slow to violence, but when you use it, use it decisively. I think you know, Machiavelli says something to that effect. What we see over the last 20 years with regards to UK-US foreign policy is you're very fast to use violence and you don't use it appropriately. You know, strike and strike hard if you think you can win. But we haven't even been told what quote-unquote winning is, because is the ambition here now to remove the Houthis? How? Because it isn't going to be just through, you know, uh, a few airstrikes. Uh, serious people with serious technology. And I think for our audience and for, for Brits, for people that are coming across this story, haven't heard of the Houthis until the last month or two, not familiar with what's going on with Iran, 
this is not the 1990s. There have been 100 plus attacks on US forces in Syria and Iraq since October. There have been dozens of attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. And of course, yesterday, the Iranians seized a, a, US, um, a US ship on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula. This is very serious. So we've got the Red Sea, the Strait of Hormuz, Syria, Iraq. Would you call it a regional war? No, but the region is at war. Does Britain want to be involved in that? What does it stand to gain from it? You know, we're not even being asked these questions by our politicians, let alone being given the answers. Next story. There's a lot of history and complexity that's led to the Houthi disruption of shipping lanes in the Red Sea. What isn't complicated is Britain's double standards when it comes to bombing the Houthis while offering Israel a carte blanche in Gaza. Andrew Fisher is a columnist for the I newspaper and Labour's former director of policy under Jeremy Corbyn. He had this to say on Sky News. I think what it highlights is the extreme double standards. Here we are, the Houthis have been attacking shipping lanes. Um, no deaths so far, thankfully. Um, Israel's been bombarding Gaza for the last three months. Tens of thousands of people died, children being amputated without anaesthetic, and that's fine. No sanctions on Israel, no strikes against them, no arms well, I guess, embargo. But I the guess Houthis this is because of rebel, this against the UK target, though, right? Is that not? It's because we don't care about international law or human rights. We have this rhetoric that we do, but we don't. This is absolute nonsense. And this whole conflict is exposing that. We say that, you know, the Iran-backed Houthi rebels, well, they've been bombed by the US and UK-backed Saudi Arabia for the last 10 years. Um, you know, actually, the last Labour um, administration was calling for sanctions on Saudi Arabia over this for um, an arms embargo. Hillary Benz, you know, somebody who's serving under Keir Starmer, was leading this within the last shadow cabinet. So, you know, we talk about this in completely bizarre ways that spins it into this sort of thing of one side is bad and the other side's crimes are airwashed. I mean, we've got a case in the International Court of Justice today brought by South Africa against Israel for genocide. We're not talking about that. We're talking about some interruption to shipping lanes. I mean, it's pretty small-scale stuff when tens of thousands of people are being killed. And, you know, I don't care what adjective you call it, whether you call it a massacre, a slaughter, ethnic cleansing, genocide, it doesn't really much matter. Tens of thousands of people are being killed, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about some shipping lanes. It's, it's perverse, but, really, and the rest of the world can see it. I think that Andrew Fisher makes two really important points. The first really important point that he makes is the way in which US and British armed forces react when there's a danger to commercial interests. But when we're seeing the pulverization of a civilian population in Gaza, well, sorry, that's just war. That's just what war is. So you've got a regard for international law and norms when it comes to you know, nations which don't hold a lot of diplomatic sway. But when it's Israel, to whom we provide diplomatic cover and arms sales, and in the case of the US, vast quantities of military aid, well, sorry, international law doesn't apply. We will contort ourselves into a falsely held belief that Israel is somehow abiding by international law in its targeting of civilian infrastructure. And I think the second really important point that Andrew Fisher makes is about the way in which the rest of the world sees Britain and America at this moment, because when you turn on Sky News or you open up the newspapers today, there is this phenomenal confidence, which I think is born out of ignorance, displayed by the British political and commentary class. I was just reading in The Telegraph an article by Hamish de Breton Gordon saying that Britain and America must bomb Houthi bases into rubble and bomb them again if they don't get the message. Okay, well, how? Because Saudi Arabia doesn't want to put itself at risk of Houthi attacks again. It's in a very fragile kind of, you know, detente with Iran. Neighboring countries like Oman or, you know, African countries, which are on the other side of the Red Sea, aren't necessarily going to be leaping at the opportunity to offer themselves up as bases or opening up their airspace to Britain and America. How are you going to achieve this when there is not a huge amount of appetite in the region to escalate a conflict apart from and the part of Israel? Because Israel's perspective is the more we can keep Britain and America locked into a fractious and violent Middle East, the more military aid we get. It's existential for us. So very, very important points made there by Andrew Fisher. Aaron, 
Do you perceive a big gulf between how Britain views its action in Yemen and how the rest of the world is seeing it? Of course, of course, there's a massive gap. I mean, there was a massive gap in previous times, but now it's, look, as I said earlier, we haven't grasped that the world has changed. Now, we talk about the rise of a multipolar order. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Iranians can now manufacture drone technology, which is about 10 years behind the US. Um, it means that uh, Yemenis have anti-ship missiles with a range of 800 kilometers. It means that they can take over uh, large ships using you know, what look like special forces with helicopters onto a moving vessel. You know, th These are not little Somali pirates in a rubber dinghy. Uh, we look at these things in a very strange way, I think. And, and look, frankly, again, like I say, that's because the media is not informing the public about this stuff. How many people out there know that U.S. service personnel have suffered 100-plus attacks in Syria and Iraq from Iraqi militias, backed by the Iranians, they are a proxy, um, since October? And there has been specific declarations by the leaders of those militias. You can choose to believe them or not, but they've said it. We will stop this once the war in Gaza stops. How, how, how many times has that been repeated in, in, in the British media, particularly in broadcast? I haven't really heard it. Um, going back to the point Andrew made about uh, shipping lanes, I sort of disagree. Um, I think they do matter immensely. They clearly don't matter as much as what's going on in Gaza, but they matter immensely. And it's precisely for that reason that I think what the Americans and the British are doing is insane. Because through the Red Sea, and just to again reiterate to our audience, you have the Red Sea on one side, going between East Africa, the Horn of Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula. You have the Strait of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf between Iran and, and Saudi. Um, through those two channels of water, you've got about 40% of globally traded oil going through there. 40% globally traded oil. Um, and what you're basically seeing here is a bet that if we bomb some people in Yemen, that will somehow stop. Okay, well, let's say you're wrong. Let's say it escalates. Where does this end? Well, it ends with some kind of blockade of both, both uh, sections there, either side of the Arabian Peninsula. And that's 40% of globally traded oil. What does that mean? It means global energy prices will go up. And it's something I've said a lot recently, but I, I, I really think it's lost to some extent on a European audience, is that actually the United States, as a net exporter of energy, doesn't really care. I mean, they, you know, they care. Global inflation is going to hit their consumer, but it's going to destroy Europe destroy Europe, because Europe is this massive importer of hydrocarbons. And in fact, as we've seen with the war in Ukraine, the, the US filled the gap left by the Russians by exporting liquid natural gas to Europe. So the US is an exporter of energy. It's a, it's, it's a beneficiary in these kinds of situations on balance. Europe, meanwhile, is screwed. And what do we have? We have the British and the Germans, like little clapping seals, uh, doing whatever the US wants. Although what's key here, Ash, is that people supporting these strikes last night include the Dutch, makes sense. Obviously, a huge maritime sector in the Netherlands, proportional to its economy. The Germans, makes sense. They've gone completely nuts as a country since the war in, um, in, in Gaza. They've gone completely insane. Not a serious country, not a serious civil society. You know, they're politicians from von der Leyen to, to Schultz or a meme. Um, but if you look at France, Italy, Spain, they've not supported this. Saudi Arabia, UAE, they've not supported this. Um, the Saudis want to host the World Cup. You know, Bin Salman wants Cristiano Ronaldo TikToks and weird cities. That's what he wants. He doesn't want more Mahajad drones destroying Aramco infrastructure and IRGC commanders in Qom having a chuckle. He doesn't want that. He wants to make lots of money and get lots of influences in Saudi Arabia and uh, you know, basically turn the country into one big influencer studio. That's what he wants to do. Same for the UAE, same for the Qataris. That's what they want to do. They want to showcase themselves to the world, have these powerful, successful sovereign wealth funds, make lots of money, keep themselves safe through projecting soft power in the West, things like owning football teams and whatnot. They do not want a massive regional war. Uh, and I find it weird that you know, the Brits care more about uh, what's going on in the Red Sea uh, than the Saudis do, because you know, it is their neighborhood. So I suspect they, they know what they're doing when they say, look, let's not, be, let's not be quick to conflict here. Let's try and keep dialogue open. Let's try and use diplomatic channels. They're saying that for a reason. I've got to say, I really enjoy listening to Aaron when he's talking about foreign affairs, because he's spitting straight facts, but also doing it in a way 
where the images are all really, really sticky. For the last, you know, four hours in my head, I've been going, Saudi Arabia wants to host the World Cup. That's because Aaron said that to me on my tea break. Um, Very effective communicator that we have at Navarra Media. We're very lucky. Let's move on to our next story. Israel has today presented its defence against accusations of genocide brought by South Africa at the International Court of Justice. It comes after South Africa made a forensic, three-hour-long account of the atrocities committed in Gaza that have resulted in the killing of over 23,000 Palestinians. They're asking the court to impose an emergency order, known as provisional measures, blocking Israel from continuing its onslaught. So, how is Israel defending itself in court? Speaking for Israel, lawyer Tal Becker opened the country's defence with this characterisation of South Africa's case. The applicant has regrettably put before the court a profoundly distorted factual and legal picture. The entirety of its case hinges on a deliberately curated, decontextualized and manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence in its opening presentation yesterday, that broad commitment to humanity rang hollow. And in its sweeping counterfactual description of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it seemed to erase both Jewish history and any Palestinian agency or responsibility. Indeed, the delegitimization of Israel since its very establishment in 1948 in the applicant's submissions sounded barely distinguishable from Hamas's own rejectionist rhetoric. A key component of Israel's case is that the country is not acting as an aggressor against Gaza. Instead, its military operations are an act of existential self-defence. Malcolm Shaw, Professor of International Law at the University of Leicester, made this argument. South Africa casts its net widely. In its application, it uses the word context many times. In particular, it declares that it is important to place the acts of genocide in the broader context of Israel's conduct towards the Palestinians during its 75-year-long apartheid. Leaving aside the outrageous nature of that statement, why stop at 75 years? Why not refer to 1922 and the approval by the Council of the League of Nations of the British Mandate? Or 1917, the proclamation of the Balfour Declaration? Maybe also include the entry into the land of Israel of the Israelite tribes some 3,500 years ago. No. The immediate and proximate context for the specific allegations of genocide claimed by South Africa lies in the events of the 7th of October, when Hamas militants and other armed groups and individuals stormed into the internationally recognized sovereign territory of Israel and committed acts of barely credible atrocity. It was these events that truly constitute the real context for South Africa's allegations. Indeed, such acts may be seen as the real genocide in this situation. So, first things first, acting in self-defense doesn't mean that you're not committing genocide. And there's also the question of whether Israel, as an occupying power, even has the legal right to military self-defense against the occupied. We'll go on with Israel's legal arguments in a moment, but court cases aren't just about the arguments. They're also about the theatre. And here's a moment of drama from Shaw's presentation. The court was prepared to consider not only the question, question of the plausibility of rights, Well, some has shuffled my papers. Well, 
but also the uh, question of the possible breach of such rights. It's given Boris Johnson, I can't lie. Now, look, maybe that was a highly paid and highly prepared international lawyer with a huge legal team just losing his place and shuffling his papers. Or maybe, just maybe, it was a tactic to conceal the thinness of the case, basically vamping for time. In order for the court to make the provisional order against Israel's attack on Gaza, South Africa only has to show that it's plausible that genocide will occur if the assault is allowed to continue. To do this, South Africa tried to establish intent to commit genocide on the part of Israeli government ministers and military officials by presenting a series of pretty damning statements that they'd publicly made. This was how Shaw responded to those claims. In order to determine the policy and intentions of the government of Israel, it is necessary to examine the decisions of the Ministerial Committee on National Security Affairs and the War Cabinet, and to examine whether the particular comments expressed conform or not with the policies and decisions made. Thus, to produce random quotes that are not in conformity with government policy, produced as describing is misleading at best. Some of the comments to which South Africa refers are clearly rhetorical, made in the immediate aftermath of an event which severely traumatized Israel, but which cannot be seen as demanding genocide. They express anguish and the necessity to restore control over Israel's own territory under severe threat and safety to its citizens. As Judge Tomka has noted, sometimes statements are made which are nothing more than a part of the recent wartime rhetoric, intending to put the blame and shame on the other side. Not to be totally ignored, but not to be ascribed an importance which belies how and when they were made, nor of legal significance. Countries committing genocide don't generally put it on the statute books or in the records of their cabinet minutes. As South African lawyer Adila Hassim told the court yesterday, quote, genocides are never declared in advance. Again, when it comes to making a provisional order, the question for the court will be whether statements by high-ranking officials have created the kind of permissive atmosphere where a genocide could plausibly take place. Also part of Israel's defence was the claim that they're doing everything they can to preserve Palestinian lives. Its lawyers argued that Israel couldn't be intending to commit genocide if it was in fact protecting the lives of Palestinians on the ground in Gaza. Precisely such concrete measures have been taken by Israel, which has been facilitating the provision of more and more humanitarian assistance for people in need throughout the Gaza Strip. These steps have not only been increasing so as to meet the developing situation on the ground. They are continuously undertaken specifically in order to prevent harm to the civilian population. These efforts have had an impact. Just last week, for example, with the assistance of the World Food Programme, a dozen bakeries reopened with the capacity to produce more than two million breads a day. The World Food Programme has said the delivery of flour, salt, sugar and yeast continues so as to enable more bakeries to reopen, increasing accessibility and affordability for thousands of families. Just a few notes here. Last week, and thousands of families and the capability to produce two million breads per day A capability doesn't actually mean there's bread. There are 2.3 million people in Gaza, and by early November, every bakery in northern Gaza had been shut down. This is a headline from Israeli magazine 972 today. It's like living in a mortuary, waiting for someone to bury you, it says. And it goes on to detail the widespread risk of starvation and disease in Gaza City today. Israel's case was brought to a close by its Deputy Attorney General Gilad Noam, and he ended with what may have sounded to some like a threat to the court's legitimacy if it sided with South Africa. 
in living memory of the atrocities that gave birth to the term genocide, in the aftermath of which the state of Israel was founded, we are witnessed we are witness to a concerted and cynical effort to pervert the meaning of the term genocide itself. The Genocide Convention is too important a foundation in humanity's aspiration to defeat barbarism and evil to be belittled in this way. And the faith that has been placed in international law and its institutions is too cher cherished an asset to be squandered. We appeal to this court not to be taken down that dangerous road. Earlier today, I spoke to Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine Director of Human Rights Watch. I began by asking him about what he made of the strength of the two arguments presented. I think ultimately the court has a lot to weigh. I think the gravity and the severity of the situation on the ground warrants the court's scrutiny. I think South Africa um, made a compelling case regarding both the underlying concerns um, regarding the situation in Gaza and the need for scrutiny under the um, Genocide Convention, as well as uh, the need for urgent measures to protect Palestinians in Gaza and curtail uh, further suffering. The Israeli government presented their own case, uh, raising questions both around um, the court's jurisdiction, <clears throat> uh, pushing back, obviously, um, against the merits of the contention around genocide, but also pushing back on measures that could impede uh, their ability to continue their campaign um, in Gaza. So ultimately, uh, both parties have put forward their arguments in front of the world's uh, court, and now it's incumbent on the court to uh, reach a determination, and it's incumbent on all parties, as well as all states and the international community, to commit to abiding by the court's decision, regardless of whether or not they agree on the merits of it. Ultimately, this is about um, this case is being heard by the world's highest court, and um, there needs to be a commitment um, to the rule of law um, and adhering to their binding decision. There were two main threads to Israel's argument today. The first, as you mentioned, was a sort of technical argument about jurisdiction and the manner in which South Africa made its submission to the court. And then the second thread was about this question of genocidal intent. Is it possible for the court to issue a ruling based on this kind of technicality while dodging the question of genocidal intent entirely? The initial decision-making is going to be focused on the provisional measures. The underlying case on the merits is going to take uh, probably several years to adjudicate. There will be significant more time for argument, discussion, back and forth. Um, and, and so questions around genocidal intent, around um, you know statements of officials, ultimately that will be adjudicated um, over time. Right now, the key question the court has is whether or not to take measures requested by South Africa, but not limited to what's requested by South Africa, that are meant to do several things. One is ensure compliance with the Genocide Convention, and secondly, to ensure that the case can be fa fairly adjudicated on the merits. So the focus for the coming weeks, and decisions should be reached uh, based on ICJ practice, within weeks will be whether or not the court considers measures um, uh, to do those objectives. They could include measures that, including a cessation of Israel's um, hostilities to measures to allow an increased aid to measures that call for compliance with international law and the Genocide Convention to measures to protect and preserve evidence um, for this particular hearing. So that's really what the focus of the court's ruling is going to be, is about the provisional measures. They will consider all arguments that go to that, um, whether it's South Africa's contentions regarding the urgency of the situation um, on the ground, or the Israeli government's contentions regarding um, uh, their um, uh, the argument they've articulated that they need to be able to respond to October 7th, and um, the inability of the court to bind Hamas, um, which is not before the court. So I think those are the kinds of arguments that will um, determine how this court rules in the coming weeks. 
As you mentioned earlier, part of Israel's rebuttal to the case presented by South Africa was to present statements made by its officials, which distinguished between civilians and Hamas combatants. How much legal weight does that have? Because, of course, South Africa is saying that other statements made by officials are evidence of genocidal intent. Do statements which don't have genocidal intent counterway or cancel out evidence presented by South Africa? It's not a matter of arithmetic, right? I mean, the statements are obviously probative and they'll be looked at and they'll look at all statements, um, statements uh, that were made uh, in the early days um, after October 7th and more recent statements. But really, um, the key question uh, with intent is the is how it's understood by those that are carrying out the underlying actions um, that are being scrutinized. So regardless of what people said one way or another, um, a large part of the consideration will be how that was understood and how it was implemented and carried out in the particular actions uh, that were undertaken. So there has to be a look at the nexus between statements and actions, because as you rightly point out, um, you know, you can find statements that say different things. Um, and so the question will be, again, what is the way in which this was understood and how did it affect the actions that were carried out? And let's be quite clear, um, as you know, numerous human rights organizations have put out, the Israeli government has said um, in direct terms that they hold the entire population of Gaza responsible for the October 7th attacks, that they're punishing uh, civilians, that they're using starvation as a weapon of war. That has been clearly articulated by the prime minister, the defense minister, the national security minister, numerous other uh, senior ministers, and even statements that cut the other direction, um, you know, I don't think have the effect of um, outweighing what's been clearly articulated as a policy. You know, again, there are different ways statements can be interpreted, um, and there can be other statements, but ultimately, the court will not rely on statements alone, but also look at um, the ways in which it was understood and carried out by um, officers and soldiers on the ground. And I suppose I've got one final question about the way in which the court itself works, both in terms of provisional measures and a final ruling on the question of genocide. Are you confident that the 15 judges who are hearing the case will be making their judgment on the basis of the evidence presented to them? Or is there an element of issuing a verdict in line with their particular country's geopolitical interests? The rules of the court are quite clear. Every judge that joins the ICJ takes an oath to be independent, to evaluate the case um, on the substance and on the merits, irrespective of their own um, uh, background, views, the views of the country they're from. Uh, that is an obligation that all judges take. Obviously, every person, every judge is a product of their own uh, lived experiences. But, um, you know, I think the ICJ has a long track record of um, issuing judgments based on uh, the substance and on the merits and based on an independent evaluation of the facts uh, presented. So I think ultimately that is, um, you know, what the court, you know, will do here. And I think it's important that the court has um, that the court uh, has the independence to do that and that states commit to respecting um, and abiding by the, the decisions the court reached, both the decision that will be reached in the coming weeks on provisional measures. That's a binding decision. It's binding on the parties. It's binding on all states. Um, and it doesn't require any further step. It is immediately legally binding. Um, and um, if uh, the parties do not follow those provisional measures, it is incumbent upon states to use their leverage, including arms embargoes, sanctions, statements, um, and other actions um, in order to ensure enforcement with that decision. It's also important that UN bodies um, and other international mechanisms use their own leverage to ensure compliance um, with the court's decision. They're legally binding. Um, the fact that Israel is participating in the proceedings, I think, um, points in the direction, hopefully, that they consider the, the decision binding and would be a, a further dark stain um, on their reputation should they not comply with whatever measures that are ordered by the court. That was Omar Shakir from Human Rights Watch speaking to me earlier today. We have one update to this story. Germany has said it will intervene in the ICJ case on Israel's behalf. So what does that mean? 
because the Genocide Convention is a multilateral agreement, signatory states may be allowed to intervene in a case if they think a certain outcome will alter their obligation under the agreement. The German argument is that if the court finds that Israel has committed genocidal acts, it would change the meaning of genocide in law, and Germany wants to keep the bar for genocide high. As its spokesperson said, quote, we stand firmly against a political instrumentalization of the convention. In order to intervene and make arguments in Israel's favor, the court would have to agree to let Germany join the case. And even then, it isn't clear whether this would affect South Africa's request for a provisional order to stop the attack on Gaza, or if it would only be relevant to the court's decision on the question of whether Israel has in fact committed genocide. That's a decision that won't be made for years. One of the things that we're really proud about at Navarra Media is our original reporting. And this next story was reported by Daisy Schofield. And it's exactly the kind of reporting that you just won't find anywhere else. Haifa is a city in the north of Israel, and it's branded as its coexistence capital. Its mixed population of Jews, Christians and Muslims helps Israel present itself as a liberal and multi-religious democracy. That is, if you ignore a decades-long occupation and industrial slaughter in Gaza. Last November, two Israeli women, Gaia Dan and Mickey Perry, were insulted, arrested and beaten by police after participating in a peaceful protest in Haifa against the assault on Gaza. Mickey Perry said this. We tried to demonstrate with very, very mild, subtle messages, said Perry, who made a placard reading, I cry for everybody, and duct tape her mouth shut to draw attention to the limits placed on free speech in Israel. Because we are living in a dictatorship, we have to be careful, she said. But even this highly inoffensive and watered-down form of protest wasn't enough to avoid being targeted by Israeli police. Eight officers arrived to confront fewer than 20 protesters, accusing them of, quote, violating the public peace. Perry and Dan were amongst those arrested, and how they were treated is pretty vile. This, again, is from Daisy Schofield's report. Perry and Dan were beaten at the scene before being pushed inside a police car. In the car, she and Dan were called sluts by an officer who refused to let Perry access her inhaler when she feared she could have an asthma attack. The pair were released after a couple of hours. Gaia Dan and Mickey Perry have been organising with a small but dedicated block of anti-occupation Israelis as part of the wider movement against Netanyahu's judicial reforms. This anti-occupation block had been about 100 people strong, but since aggressive treatment at the hands of Israeli police, their numbers have dwindled. Activists say they were notionally allowed to protest before October 7th, but that after the Hamas attacks, the state has taken a much more hardline approach. This is what happened to one man. In late October, 68-year-old Yoav Haofawi was at home with his wife when he heard noises outside. The anti-Zionist activist had attended a Palestine solidarity protest 11 days before, where he was taken alongside six other protesters to a detention centre waiting room by Israeli police and released the following day without charge. When he opened the door, a dozen police officers stormed in with a search order signed by a judge, he said. Police pointed guns at Haifawi and his wife while they ransacked their home, seizing and photographing incriminating materials, Palestinian flags and posters calling for the release of Palestinian prisoners. Haifawi, who has a chronic health condition, was arrested and then taken to a hospital where he was detained. Yoav Haifawi was arrested for, quote, behaviour that might disturb public order before being released without charge after a judge reviewed the case. And you don't just have to take the word of this one article. This next video, shared on Twitter by a Haaretz reporter in December, shows just how low the threshold for arresting protesters appears to be in Haifa. So what you see here is at least a small protest of about 20 people in Haifa's Hadar neighbourhood. It's the definition of a peaceful protest. People are sitting down. They're not even chanting. And to be honest, you might not even really consider it a protest at all. No one's moving. No one's making much noise. But as you can see, that doesn't stop Israeli police from intervening. One protester is led away by police officers while others are dispersed. 
All in all, two people were arrested at that protest and the group's banners were confiscated. Now, that might not sound like particularly harsh treatment, but what it does show is just how little toleration there is in Israel for the right to protest against the activities of its government and its military. Now, I do want to stress that being arrested and released without charge is small potatoes compared to the experiences of Palestinians in Israeli military detention. However, it's obvious that Israel's attempt to brand itself as a liberal democracy, all while maintaining a brutal and illegal occupation, means that civil liberties are under constant attack. And as Gaia Dan notes in Daisy Schofield's article, how can it be a capital of coexistence if I can't even raise a Palestinian flag? It's coexistence only for Jews. Well, how indeed. For more on this story, you can read Daisy Schofield's article on navaratmedia.com. The link to that is in the description box below. Let's move on. The Brexit party are back, baby. Only now they're called reform and they're not just all about Brexit anymore. If you cast your mind back to the hazy reaches of last week, you might remember party leader Richard Tice delivering a speech setting out his stall for the coming general election. He promised lower taxes, net zero immigration, cheaper energy and zero NHS waiting lists. And I'm sure that moon on a stick will be coming along any day now. Some people smirked at Reform's PowerPoint presentation. But look at that graphic design! I mean, the Photoshop work! Don't think that either Labour or the Conservatives will ever be able to recover from this. In reality, the important part of Richard Tice's speech was this. I'm optimistic that the country quite rightly wants to punish the Tories for breaking Britain, because that is what they want to do. I think the country wants to punish them, to oust them and replace them. The question is what we replace them with. Now, three years ago, when I launched Reform UK, the Tories laughed at me. They said, why are you bothering? We're getting it sorted. And to coin an expression from my good friend Nigel in the European Parliament, they're not laughing now. No, the truth is the Tories are terrified. Yes, in the new year, the special pleading has already started. Oh, please don't stand here. Please don't stand there. I'm one of the nice guys. I believe in all everything that you believe in. You've all broken Britain. You're all responsible. So there's no special deals. We stand in every single seat in England, Scotland and Wales. Why that's important, of course, is that in 2019, the Brexit party used standing against the Conservatives in marginal constituencies as leverage to get them to commit to a much tougher Brexit position. They eventually stood down. This time around, Richard Tice is effectively saying there's no policy position you can take to buy us off. Standing in every seat in Great Britain, of course, requires fielding a lot of candidates. So many, in fact, that reform have been a little bit sloppy with their due diligence. Here's Richard Tice being grilled by Nick Ferrari on LBC this morning. Maggie Moriando, who's your candidate in Bedford. Anyone who still believes in climate change is unfortunately blinded by ideology and a lack of critical thinking skills. Uh, Andrew Husband, who's going to stand in North Durham. It's a scam. And we also have Sean Matthews, who'll be in Louth and Newcastle. There is no climate crisis. Well, These that, are your candidates who totally disagree with you. No, they don't. Actually, that last point... I'm po- so sorry. Uh, Nick, the, hang the, on, that last point, there, right, there isn't a climate tri- crisis, I, right? There is climate change, of right. course. But the key thing is, no, is how you respond to it, Nick. We should adapt but to it. Maggie Moriondo says it's a scam and you lack critical thinking skills if you support it. Have but, you spoken to Maggie? Everybody will have different opinions. Our our party policy... We're not a very united band, are we? Well, it's like any political party. You'll have different views across the whole range of perspectives. The key point is you have to adapt to climate change. Anybody who thinks you can stop climate change, I don't think, is actually uh, listening to what the IPCC says. They say that... Hang on, hear me out. They say that even if we get to net zero tomorrow, it'll make no difference to sea level rise for between 200 and 1,000 years. The smart thing to do is to adapt to it rather than, I think, foolhardily think that you can stop climate change. All you right. can't. Let's come back to Louth and Horncastle, your candidate, Sean Matthews. He's a colourful chap, isn't he? Do you know Sean? 
you know him well? I don't know. Nick, we've got about 500 candidates, so I don't share, know each and every, every one of you. Just over a year ago. It's no surprise children want to remove their penises and become girls. Most of their parents started the process shortly after birth by chopping their foreskins off in the name of, brackets, insert deity, close brackets. He's a reform candidate. Uh, news to me, I shall look at that. Thank you, Nick. Is that the sort of candidate you want? No, we, look, we, we are very clear. If anybody says or writes something that is daft and inappropriate, then we will look at that and form a very quick view. And actually, that's one of the advantages. As a, uh, as a lean party with a, a clear right. uh, management structure, we can make very fast decisions. So lastly, before we go to calls, uh, again, Andrew Husband, North Durham, Ukraine was media hype. It was Ukraine media hype. Look, Ukraine, sadly, has been invaded by Russia and we've got to do all we can to support Ukraine in, uh, in trying to defend its sovereign territory. And lastly, Maggie Moriondo, we go back to Bedford. Um, Covid scam was paid by Big Pharma to lie to us. So Covid was a scam as well, was it? Covid was very real, of course it was. But what and, and, and Covid, and COVID, COVID is... Look, that, that took my colleague five minutes to look at their tweets. Why aren't you doing a proper background check? We're doing checks, and, in, and you're doing checks. We're doing checks, and if there are people, if there are people that are inappropriate, then uh, we would obviously remove them. And look, so, with, let's be so very we need clear. a review of candidates, don't we? At reform, that is that is ongoing all the time. Every party is always ongoing vetting their candidates, and occasionally well, people will say the wrong thing, say something daft. <laughs> we did this in under an hour. Aaron, we saw an awful lot of this with disgraced UKIP and Brexit party candidates being found to have, you know, tweeted racist things or, you know, holding to conspiracy theories. But that didn't really impact the electoral strategy of either UKIP and the Brexit party. So do you think that Nick Ferrari's line of question questioning is kind of missing the point here? Partly, but also reform is a different beast to the Brexit Party and UKIP because, of course, they were just a sing they were single party, single issue parties. Um, well, look, we might disagree or agree on this. It doesn't matter. We want to leave the European Union. We want a referendum. We want the referendum respected. Um, so I think it probably does matter to some extent. Now, of course, what Tice is saying there is that there is disagreement within any large party. That's true. The issue is reform is not a large party. You know, when you have a, a, a party membership like under Jeremy Corbyn with Labour, half a million plus, yes, of course, uh, reform isn't that. And I do find it strange that they're looking to stand candidates in every single constituency. I think that really, to me, betokens the fact that they're not a very serious organisation. What would make far more sense would be to stand 30 candidates in Tory seats, 30 candidates in uh, Labour seats, and to have a very specific, clear message. Spreading thin and, and having lots of people lose their deposit Okay, it's uh, it's a good headline. We're standing in every seat. It, it doesn't, you know, doesn't really go very far most of the time. Also, that poster that we saw a moment ago of, um, you know, the new party being embodied half by this Harlequin, half by uh, Keir Starmer, half by Rishi Sunak, doesn't mean anything to anybody. Most people look at that. And go, what what am I looking? Is that is that a poster for the the Joker uh, sequel? What the hell is this? Doesn't mean anything to most people. Um, and it is interesting that at the very moment, actually, I think we're looking at incredibly fertile terrain for a populist party of the right. The Tories and Labour are fortunate enough that the leader of it is Richard Tyers, who frankly is no Nigel Farage. Um, that said, I think reform will do okay. You know, I think they'll, they, they could break 5% at a general election. I think that's unlikely. I mean, that would be an extraordinary achievement if they do, by the way. But they could get a couple of percent in a general election, and that is going to cost the Tories potentially dozens of seats. Now, the joker in the pack here is if Nigel Farage returns to frontline politics, stands as a candidate or even leads them, I find the leading thing unlikely. Though, of course, he does own this operation. Very strange corporate structure. He does own it. Um, if Farage was leading them into the next election, um, then, you know, they could get 5% plus and actually that Tory quagmire, that Tory Waterloo could get a whole lot worse, you know, fewer than 100 seats. I don't foresee that happening, frankly. It could happen, though. It's plausible. Um, but I think you know, Richard Tice is not uh, the kind of political beast you want in an era of populism. You know, he's talking, they're Thatcherite talking points. You know, they're all socialists. We want lower taxes, 15-minute cities. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get what 
drove the success of Brexit. He doesn't get what drove the success of Boris Johnson in 2019. This strange fusion of, of red UKIP politics, immigration, looking after public services, a hatred, frankly, of London, um, which goes hand in hand with something which is progressive, i.e. addressing regional inequality. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get blue-collar Britain. Um, he doesn't get the fact that actually lots of minorities voted for Brexit, one in three. He doesn't, he doesn't get lots of this stuff. And it's interesting because the people in that orbit, you know, it's not just Farage, someone like Ben Habib or Stephen Wolfe back in the day, they were, I don't agree with them politically, but they're impressive figures. They're impressive figures. Richard Tice isn't that. Um, so, you know, they could do well. They could uh, spring a surprise, uh, but I very much doubt it. And it is intriguing that now, you know, I've seen on the BBC, I think BBC Radio 4 uh, last week, the story of Richard Tice, the leader of the Brexit party. When did you do that about Carla Denya? After all, she's leading the Green Party of England and Wales, who have an MP, right? Who, uh, I think they're in coalition and they run one council. Um, and I think they're in coalition for another or minority with another. But regardless, they're very prominent in local government. They're looking to win several seats in the next election. Look, if they win one more, great. But they'll be competitive in four. They'll be competitive in four seats. So you're not talking about the life story of Carla Denya or Adrian Ramsey, but you are for Richard Tice. I wonder why. You know, without that, um, without that uh, megaphone given to Richard Tice by, of course, other parts of the media, tabloids, GB News, Talk TV. You know, he was on Talk TV. Now he's on GB News. Without that megaphone they wouldn't be going very far. Of course, look, those are private businesses. They can do what they want within the confines of media regulation. However, it is particularly strange that a public service broadcaster like the BBC would seek to elevate him so much when politicians who lead parties who are fundamentally more successful don't get the same kind of uh, hand up. You have to ask why. Well, thank you, Aaron, so much for joining me tonight. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back on Monday evening. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.